when those moments of change happen, it's important to celebrate them, even if they feel really hard, even if they feel really difficult. Um, because that celebration in the moment is the most immediate form of practicing gratitude that I think one can show. There you go. That's Seth Collins, who is singing his song. Can you imagine losing your job and your girlfriend over a weekend and then having your dad pass just a year later? It sounds tragic, but sometimes life gives us what we need when we need it. And in Seth's case, that was a space to spend the last year of his father's life collaborating on a project that was meaningful to both of them on many levels and in different ways. I have to say, this one hits home for me. I lost my mom when I was 20. And without explanation, and certainly without logic, I packed up, and I moved to my parents' home in Las Vegas, of all places, and I spent the last four months of my mom's life with her. It was under very, very different circumstances. She was struggling with alcoholism, but the time was a gift that I cherish to this day. As you listen to our conversation, I'd encourage you to think about three questions. First, what should you let go of that no longer serves you? Second, how can you expand your gratitude practice to include people and experiences that were not positive in the moment? And finally, how can you co-create a meaningful experience with someone who is in the final years of their life? So I'm not hitting you up with advertisements and commercials. That's because I don't want anything to get in the way of sharing these stories with you. But if I were to be honest, I'm also just starting out and haven't been bombarded with offers as well. In all sincerity, though, I do have a few simple asks. Go to Apple Podcasts and give time to sing your song a review. I can't tell you how much it helps in bringing awareness of these awesome stories like Seth's. Please also share the podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. You can also subscribe to my weekly Time to Sing Your Song newsletter if you're interested in getting a heads up on new episodes. I also share other ideas, insights, and resources. Basically, whatever goes through my mind during that week. Go to timetosingyoursong.beehive.com forward slash subscribe. Beehive is B-E-E-H-I-I-V. As I go deeper on this journey, it is becoming clearer by the day that time to sing your song really is not about me. I never thought it was. Rather, it is a platform for ordinary people to share their stories of how they overcame gnarly obstacles to live a life that they only dreamed about. And what's crazy is the variety of stories that are coming my way. When I started, I thought they were going to lean towards finding work that you love, but the universe has pushed us into other areas like losing a loved one, addiction, and even paralysis. If you have a story or you know someone who does, reach out to me. Easiest way is to send me an email at mike at timetosingyoursong.com or you can send a direct message on social media, Mike Kearney on LinkedIn or mkearney33 on Twitter. Okay, enough of me. Let's get to Seth's story. Seth Collins, welcome to Time to Sing Your Song. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. I'm pretty fired up about this one. And I'd love, Seth, to start with your story. I know when we talked before, uh, you talked about you were someone who was checking all the boxes. You went to Michigan. I think you said you went to Oxford. 
you worked, I believe it was on the Obama campaign. Uh, I know you worked at a startup and you had a pretty crazy career there and then went into a sustainability consultancy. And then a month before COVID, you lost your job. And I think it was your girlfriend all within 24 hours. And I may have the timing wrong, but I know it was close. So I'm curious, what, what happened? Yeah, you know, I think sometimes the wind just blows and there's the person who, you know, holds on to uh, the tree against the hurricane winds and, you know, refuses to let go. And then there's the person who says, I'm going to trust this wind and I'm just going to let go and has some intuition that, that that's actually a good thing. And so... Yeah, I was at a moment in my life where I thought I had really gotten all the pieces together finally um, and was really feeling like all the commitments were, were, were coming together. I had this relationship that was moving towards marriage and we'd been talking about it. I had this job that felt from an intellectual standpoint as the perfect amalgamation of the my background and experience and all of these things. And yet at the same time, there were little whispers, you know, little breezes even that said something different at times. And I hadn't been listening to those too much and ultimately arrived at a moment where uh, the invitation to completely let all of that go, all these things I was planning on, all these things I was planning on doing um, this trajectory I thought I was on and go in a completely different direction um, and literally sort of get uprooted. Uh, so in some ways, maybe I was the tree, not the person holding onto the tree. <laughs> and I was the tree letting go of the ground, but just being uprooted and allowed to, to fall into, I don't know, a river and take into another area to, to serve a different purpose. Um, and yeah, a terrifying experience in some ways when I don't know if you've ever been in that moment where you feel like this is it. These are all the things I'm going to do. This is, this is the relationship. This is the job. This is the place. And then all of those things sort of change. And so it was a, it was a really shocking moment for me to, to see these things change. And yet, because of those little whispers I had had before, um, there was some degree of truth that felt underneath a lot of pain and shock and all of these things, there was some level of truth that I was actually clearing out things that weren't fully aligned for myself in my life and being lightened, again, to bring that wind metaphor in, to be lightened enough that I could actually be redirected to the right place where I was supposed to be, which uh, for me was at the time, my, my dad was incredibly ill um, and, he had uh, wanted me to come up and spend more time with him. He had recently told me that. He, uh, I'd been going up to do some experimental blood transfusion treatments for him. And so while I was having this whole built inertia happening around my life in Austin, I also had this little knock of come up to Madison, spend time with your dad. Um, and then I was consistently, did have a part of my mind there. And so that was really what was happening at that moment. And, and was that, that feeling of going up to Madison, do you think those were the whispers or was it something else? I'm, I'm curious because 
you indicated that like life was pretty damn good. You had this good job. You had a girlfriend, which was trending towards marriage, but something sounds like something was telling you something different. I'm curious how those man- whispers manifested themselves. Yeah. I think in all little areas, they perked up. Mm. You know, I think when I was living in Austin at the time, I was, the housing boom had already started to happen. And the people that I was connected to in Austin were starting to feel like Austin was changing for them. And so, and I was looking at the math of buying a house there at that time and competing with all the real estate investment trusts. And I was just having the sense of, ah, I'm just, it's not clicking together here. And so that was one there. There were little things coming up in the relationship that the the part of me that was um, deeply in love just ignored, but maybe had deeper truth to them. Um, I remember at the job, I had these experiences where I've always had these really positive relationships with the people that I work with. And yet in this one job, it seemed like every small mistake I made was the only thing that was amplified. The one email that I forgot to respond to was the most important email that I should have responded to for that week. And that's not the type of thing that happens for me. I don't miss the big thing. Um, I don't, I don't ignore that. And yet somehow it was like, you know, uh, you could almost say like a spirit came in and like blocked that line in my inbox. So I couldn't see it. Um, And also when I had spent time with the organization, uh, I had just this constant feeling of, I'm just not sure if these are my people. And I think I stored those thoughts away. You know, we're not always trained to honor those thoughts. Um, And I think for myself, honestly, I would be scared of, well, wait a second, if I, this isn't the right job, if this isn't the right relationship, if this isn't the right place, well, what is? And, you know, there's this big unknown. those whispers, I think, also came on the other side from my dad and these invitations. There was an invitation to write a book with him that actually had started maybe six to eight months before this this moment. Um, and I had tried to, but was very focused on being where I was and what was going on in my life in Austin at the time. And so I really couldn't do that. And then again, they got louder with these invitations to come back to Madison and this rising feeling of, wow, my my dad's really not doing well. This may be the beginning of the end. Shouldn't I be near him more? I'm feeling, I'm feeling called to that. So through every channel, they sort of speak in their own ways. Are you better? Do you think now at hearing the meaning behind the whispers? I'm guessing you probably have whispers in different ways now in your life, but do you, are you better at, at listening to them? Yeah, I think I'm better at honoring them um, because sometimes whispers can speak truth, but that doesn't mean that they require action. They just require acknowledgement to say, yes, this is true. Yes, I feel this, but I don't know what to do about this right now, but I promise you I won't ignore you. I promise you that I'll be attentive to you. And so I think in that way, yes, I think that I do continue to honor them more strongly as well. Um, I can remember in the past couple of years, some tumultuous times that have come up where big levers of change could have been pulled. And I don't know for yourself, but as we relive traumas or there's this sort of mental brain that's trying to figure out life when things are unclear, or uncertain, 
And then there's this other layer of intuition. And again, I would say these whispers that suggest, well, actually, maybe it's this. Maybe you should make this choice. Maybe you should stay here. And I did honor those over the past two years a lot more than I think I had before. Um, they took different forms, but definitely really, uh, really important choices that I made or important choices that I chose not to make um, were driven by hearing some of those. Yeah, I love this notion of just honoring, you know, your intuition or these whispers. It sounds like you're doing a better job of it. We all have those kind of whispers or intuition or gut instinct. What would you tell somebody that maybe is listening to this that has these whispers that that they either are ignoring or they don't know what to do? Like, like what's your process for honoring? I think the first thing to do is just acknowledgement. Um, they can be confusing. They can feel like they're pulling you in a very different direction than where you are. But ultimately, uh, the way I orient to them is these are these are here to serve you. And so one offering I could make if folks hear that is to say, well, how could this serve me? If I honored this, how could this serve me in my life? And to just give a little bit more space to what might be a reactive, whoa, that's different, or that would send me on a very different path, or that's scary to consider. And there's a different way we can we can feel about them, which is to just acknowledge them and have that curiosity. Mm. Um, a teacher of mine who I really I really respect also has said something that I think is important here, which is to also investigate where does it feel like that whisper is coming from. If it's coming from the heart, it's often a whisper, and it has the truth to it. And if it's coming from somewhere else, maybe the mind, it can be a little bit more frantic. Maybe it's not as much of a whisper, but more of a chatter or something like that. And it's also important to discern between those two things. Is this really true? Is this in alignment with my heart or my well-being or my growth? And how could this be? Or is this coming from fear or doubt or uncertainty or something of that sort? Um, so there are these little investigative practices you can take with any of these that does honor them in the way of acknowledging them and considering them more deeply. Um, most of them, I think if they're really true, will come to bear in one way, shape, or form. I didn't fully honor mine at the time. I did hear them. I didn't know what to do with them. So I allowed them to be in some ways. I didn't act dramatically about them. And I think they did come back to serve me when the universe kind of grabbed me and yanked me by the cuff and said, all right, you're out of here. <laughs> and, uh, and I could say, you know, thank you, thank you, sir and ma'am. You know, I will go along with you, kind of because I remembered those whispers too. Of, yeah, actually, okay, okay, I'll take this next step. I'll go in this direction. And yes, I'll have to work through pain and hurt and confusion and things like that. But I'll keep taking these steps along this path too, because I remember those whispers. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think, to a certain degree, when you were in Austin before you went to Madison? you were subconsciously kind of sabotaging what you had because you knew there was something else? That's a really interesting question. Um, I can't say for sure or not because it's interesting to figure out where's our agency here, right? What am I doing consciously and subconsciously within my own self? And what's just my journey on this planet? And 
you know, in my personal opinion, I've investigated these things a lot and I've seen, wow, okay, I could see some choices I made in Austin that weren't great and things like that. And, and I could put together a story of, of self-sabotage, but I don't think that was my intention. I think my heart was, was clear in a lot of ways. And I was trying to figure out a lot of things in my life. It was a big moment. Um, I don't know if your audience is familiar with the concept of a Saturn return, but I was in my Saturn return, um, which is a, a time in your late 20s, to early 30s, when uh, Saturn comes back to the position it was in your astrological natal chart when you were born. And it can be a big disruptor. Mm. Saturn is kind of seen as the big teacher. Um, after like Mercury retrograde, I think Saturn returns like the next most well-known thing that in the pop astrology moving into the common consciousness space. And it's a lot deeper than that. And I'm really being glib here in a lot of ways. Um, but Saturn is the great teacher and it brings a lot of shaking. It's kind of there to shake off the stuff in your 20s that you don't need anymore is uh, one way that people can approach it or relate to it. Um, and so I was getting a lot of that shaking at that time in my life too. And when, when I was going through that, you know, I was making missteps for sure. Um, but I was learning and I was growing and, you know, I could see myself as someone who was self-sabotaging or I could have looked, I can look at myself and this is how I do is actually someone who was in school and I was learning something new at that moment. And I see my leaving of Austin now less as an expulsion and more as a graduation. A lot of people are losing their jobs, obviously, nowadays, a lot of tech layoffs. I'm curious, when you got laid off, it sounds like you were able to quickly figure out that Madison was the place for you. But was there anything that you did to help get through those first few days uh, that potentially would benefit others as they're you know, trying to figure out, where do I go from here? It sounds like, obviously, and we're going to get into this in a second, it was a huge pivot for you that actually created this wonderful life that you have now. But it's always easy to look back and say, oh, greatest thing I ever did. What would you tell that person that just lost their job? Absolutely. Um, well, I actually work at a company right now, a company called Terra.do that helps people make career transitions. And a lot of the folks who have been affected by some of these most recent tech layoffs have actually come through our program. So I, I have these conversations actually quite actively. Um, and the first thing I always say is congratulations. Um, you know, it's uh, always, it's a scary moment. I think transitions are always scary. Oftentimes they're invitations for transformation and evolution. And every single one of those that I've gone through has been that. And when you're in the moment, you're right. It can be really, really intense. And the question for, for me has always been, well, what's the opportunity here? What, what, where can you go next? What's that thing that you've been itching to do for a while that this is giving you the, the space to, to follow? And for me, I think this is just the fact that I work with an abundance mindset, not a scarcity mindset, and a belief that the universe is generally, you know, if we were to have a good evil binary, I would say benevolent and supportive of people's journeys. And so if there's a lesson to learn, it's important to learn that lesson, and that will serve you for a long time. But there may be another door that's just on, you know, just not too far away. And so in those immediate moments, I think what's most important is actually finding peace and calm. You know, you're, a change of a job is an uprooting experience. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the, the chakra system, but your lowest chakra um, from the sort of Eastern traditions and especially India 
is your root chakra. It's your base. And a big part of that is financial stability and the ability to belong here on the planet and have a purpose and know that you're here and you have a purpose and you're supported and you're, you're on the earth, right? It's the connection to the earth that's kind of keeping you, keeping you upright. Um, and so that's getting shaken by that experience, right? Financial security might be changing, um, uncertainties being introduced. And so the thing that I think is actually most important at that time is actually grounding, finding peace. You know, I think I went for a lot of walks during that period of time. Um, the first thing I did after finding out that my, I had been uh, released from this job was to meditate. Um, I actually called my dad freaking out because <laughs> I could see all the changing happening. Like, oh my gosh, what is happening? I, I, I had this sense that like everything's about to fall apart. I was too scared to tell my, my partner at the time. And so I called my dad and he's just like, dad, oh my God. And his, he actually said, hey, let's both go meditate. Um, let's go off the phone, meditate for 40 minutes. Uh, and then let's get back on the phone and talk again. And so even his invitation to find calm, find peace, ground, it wasn't a great meditation. Probably one of my least favorite meditations <laughs> of my life. I think the entire time I was just freaking out. Um, but even that process of just observing myself do that allowed me to see that I was freaking out. And, you know, that was one thing, that was a lesson and a learning experience in its own right. I love this, Seth. First of all, I love the congratulations. And the reason why I like that is because there's so many people that are in jobs right now that may have been let go that weren't happy. And like you said, it almost mm -hmm. gives them that opportunity to kind of step back and in their gut, they probably know what they want to do or by going through a process and doing the, the hard work, they could figure it out. So I love that. This is a different way of, of thinking about it. The uh, notion of, you know, bringing a growth mindset to the opportunities is awesome. And then I love the idea of just trying to find space and peace, you know, through meditation in that moment so that you could figure out the best path forward. So I think those are few incredible pieces of advice that you've just given. There's, um, and I know we haven't gotten to it yet, but there's a, a chapter in the, in the book that I ended up writing with my dad where we talk a little bit about how to navigate the concepts of order and chaos and how one of the, you know, one of the core principles that we know of physics is that the universe is expanding, mm -hmm. which almost means that like, anything that you try to control within a box or a structure is against the will of the universe. The universe has a nature of, of expansion. Um, but you can almost consider that disorder too. If order is, I want to keep everything together in the box, right? Disorder is the natural inclination of the universe and any, you know, set of molecules, whether that's an individual, that's, you could call it growth though, right? Whether it's within an organization, et cetera, it's change. Um, and so we often as humans, I've definitely observed this, I've definitely practiced this, can get into these order structures where we want things to work within this box, right? People work out of spreadsheets. I'm sure you as a, as a consultant have had plenty of time sort of experiencing that and it's very two dimensional. And so we have this way that we view order. And so what do we do when chaos, chaos arrives? when this disorder emerges in some way, shape or form. And so often it can be fear that responds to that when really it's an opportunity to say, okay, what's, what is this expansion that's coming in that's being asked of me? And it's gonna be uncomfortable, of course, 
but there's something in it for me to see. So actually, we, we have a chapter in the book where we take that and help people think about that from an organizational lens as to say, okay, I can have, that can happen in my personal life. It actually can happen to, uh, it can happen to organizations as well, where something shows up that you weren't expecting and it's causing shaking within the organization. You have to change, you have to evolve. Um, so yeah, it's disorder is too much of it, right? You know, is chaos, but there's a way that there is a natural inclination to it, that it's important not to resist when it seems like it's really asking for itself to be acknowledged and to happen. And it feels as if it's in alignment with positive growth, whether that's value, something that feels like aligned with your values, or as might be for some of these individuals, the invitation to find more meaningful work or work that's more aligned with your values, work you're more excited to do, or another calling that, you know, maybe you haven't been listening to for a while and what is actually going to be the most nourishing thing in this lifetime that you're in is to go experiment with that and give it a try. Yeah. This notion of control really resonates with me because I, I'll just use myself as the example. I think if there have been times in my life when I have not taken a risk and, and done something differently, meaning like, you know, waited to get pushed to do that thing differently. I think it's oftentimes because I'm trying to control the outcomes. Like, I don't want things mm -hmm. to change because I know exactly what the outcomes look like. And you know, that disorder or lack of control can be scary. And, and to a certain degree, you know, when you lose your job, it does create this, it does create a bit of disorder and gives you an opportunity to really think about, you know, the best path forward and gives you a little less control, but that can actually be exciting and good for somebody, you know, that, that, that recently has lost their job. The push, the push always hurts more, yeah, <laughs> that's for totally. sure, you know? And so it's like learning to walk with the nudges before the really hard right. stiff arm comes, right? And that's, and that's, an, that's an art, uh, not a science. But what I find so interesting is that most people that have changed significantly in their life, there's usually this moment, a moment that they did not ask for. It just happens and it hits them upside mm -hmm. the head. But, you know, in retrospect, and we're going to get now into, you know, your story and what you did with your dad, you know, my guess is you're probably going to say, wow, you know, in retrospect, I'm glad this happened. And I know that's the case for many people. And, and you bring up something really important there, which is that gratitude comes in here. And having a gratitude practice for mm. that is its own challenge. You know, I, uh, I have this book that I wrote with my dad from this experience. And I've had this funny cycle of thought patterns about wanting to offer the book and to go back to Austin and drop the book off in the mailbox of the director at the company that fired me on all blank Zoom screens, you know. And to, and I've sat with that for a while and I haven't, and I've, a lot of the times that I sat with that, I felt the energy of it as uh, anger or like, nah, nah, or, you know, just <laughs> yeah. negative, negative energy that was directed in that way. And I had to go through a process of really getting fully clear that I fully have gratitude for this experience, for this having happened, because look what's emerged from that. And what felt like a really big challenge was to really get to that nitty gritty of, can I actually fully express gratitude? Can I have gratitude to the people at this organization for allowing me to go on a different path and helping me move there? Can I have gratitude towards my ex-partner 
as opposed to getting all caught up in, oh, these are the ways yeah. that you, you, were, you were mean to me or you hurt me or these types of things. Can I actually say, no, I have a deep gratitude for the nudge that you gave me as well, because that helped me fully take the step or fully move in this new direction. And that's hard, you know, it's hard. It's the clenching happens. And, you know, I'm two plus years out of that moment and I'm finally getting to a point where I can fully orient to those things with gratitude. And that's been, I've had that intention for a really long time, but even that is a practice to get clear on. And from that, the learning that I've had too is how can I get better at actually having that gratitude sooner as well? Right. Especially gratitude to unlikely people like the asshole that fired you over zoom without video on. Like, first of all, can I just make a comment to all bosses out there? Do not fire people on zoom without the video on that's bullshit. Like that, that's not appropriate. But I think what you're saying is um, when you reflect back on it, it's obviously clear that that was a step to get you where you are today. And you're grateful that it happened, but obviously given the fact that they did it in an unseemly way, it's hard to cultivate that gratitude over a period of time, but you've started to figure out a way to do that, which I think is, is fantastic. I think it's necessary mm. to have full closure. I don't think closure actually happens until there's gratitude. Mm. I like that. Is there any before, I know we really want to get into the story of you writing <laughs> uh, the, the book with your dad, but is there anything that you're doing to accelerate that gratitude, especially to those that you don't feel very grateful for? I love your choice of words there. Um, I was, I have always been a very high performing student. And so my interests have always been in accelerated paths. Um, and at the same time, because of that, I think one of my constant humblings and learnings has actually been the fact that not everything is meant to be accelerated. Mm. Some things just need to or take, they're going to take their own time to orient. And what they're really just needing is space, acknowledgement, healthy boundaries, and intention to arrive at the destination. A lot of things in my life that I've wanted to see happen, at one point I would try to make them happen very quickly. Didn't always go super well. Um, and one of the tricks that I found that has helped me really build patience um, has been just the process of holding the intention. I have a very clear intention that I want to orient to these people with gratitude. Now, however long it's gonna take me to arrive at that, I can sur I'll surrender that, that's okay. But my intention is that, and I'm making a commitment to myself that that's where I will arrive. And so anytime something comes up around it, I can remind myself of that intention. Maybe that has actually helped accelerate it for me. Um, it's felt like a long time for me because I can sometimes want to do the accelerated thing of, right, can I just be, can I just be at that gratitude point? Come on, <laughs> come on just but, make it happen. Come on, let me just be there so I can move forward with my life. But I think that there's something really important in being with the process. Yeah. And the, there are even good lessons that we can discover in being with the process of arriving at that point that are probably richer than actually the point that you arrive at. Like now that I'm there, I'm at this point where I can feel this gratitude. It's like, oh yeah, duh. Okay. No big deal. You know, it's like, I'm here. I've been meaning to get here for a long time. And I've discovered a lot of things about myself along the way because of the, 
trials and tribulations that I've had to go through to arrive at that. Yeah. Seth, this is a little different, but you reminded me of something that I've done recently, which is actually, I guess, the anti-accelerator. Uh, and this reminds me of, of what I've been doing, and it's actually made a profound impact on my life. I'm the type that wants to engage immediately. And I'll just use my kids as an example. If they do something that I feel needs to be corrected or I need to talk to them, I don't want to wait around. It's like I want to tell them in that moment. But one of the things that I've experienced is that when I do that, I'm not coming from a place of peace. And I'm certainly not coming from a place where I'm going to help them or even have mm -hmm. empathy. And so what I have done is I found different spaces or places, I guess, if you will, with my kids where I could talk to them about it in a way where I am coming from a piece, a place of peace. And, and what that often entails is waiting a few days, which I mm -hmm. never used to be able to do. But now that I've done that, um, I think I'm much better at expressing myself. And then weirdly, they're much better at listening to me probably because I'm doing it in the right way. So I mean, that's my anti-accelerator notion for the day as well. And it's served me extremely well, well. The trick of that is that's probably the real accelerator though, right? Totally. Because if the ultimate goal is that point of resolution of them listening and capturing what you're trying to share, you're probably getting there faster than if it would happen in any other way. Because what you're describing, it's this, there's this really cool, um, there's a, a world that exists that talks about this concept of polarity theory. And in that they talk about in polarity theory, it's about finding harmony between yang and yin principles, which yep. is again, kind of coming from a different world of, of Asian studies. Um, and one of the people who has been a, is a great uh, teacher in this is a man named John Chitty. And there's this, you know, the yang, it, translates roughly in in english to the masculine which is problematic because masculine feminine male female but the yang this more masculine principle wants to take action wants to do things wants this job and wants to move energy towards resolution and the yin principle which often can be considered feminine is receptive and the, actually the healthy mix of the two that that i've heard explained very much is that the yang is actually about holding the duty or the job of the arrival at the destination but it's actually through the yin that it gets that it gets realized and so you're giving a great example of this where you want to achieve this outcome but actually the best way to achieve that outcome isn't to be action oriented or respond reactive quickly but to actually be receptive to slow down to check in with yourself to sense into what is what is the right way to approach this what is true what's coming from peace or from love and then allowing that to emerge and be addressed. And the, the process looks a lot different, but in that sort of polarity theory uh, perspective, it, that is the, the path to the resolution in the most quote unquote optimal way. Good stuff, man. So it's early 2020. You mm -hmm. go up to Madison to work with your dad. Share a bit about that. You've talked about the fact that you wrote a book with your dad, but there was a pull even beyond the book to go up to Madison. Yeah. So um, I had found out recently that my, my dad was, was very sick. Um, multiple terminal illnesses was he was one who uh, resisted sharing until, you know, he really had to. And so it kind of was a, we could tell that something wasn't going great for him, but it was a moment um, actually a few months before I went up to Madison at Christmas where he finally sat down with us and my sister and I 
and shared with us the how far down his illnesses had progressed. Um, so he had something called CM CMV cytomegalovirus and CVID, common immunovariable deficiency. These are both terminal illnesses. What we didn't actually know at the time was he also had stage four, stage five liver disease, but they were hidden behind the other um, the other symptoms of the things that he had. So we didn't actually discover that until later, and that's actually what what killed him. He had been um, he had been a two-time cancer survivor already from Hodgkin's lymphoma, so his immune system was pretty beat up. Um, and so he he was really he was really ill. He was really ill, and so that was really what was driving me back up there initially when I didn't hear the call to write the book with him or didn't accept it when it first came about a year earlier. I think it was still tied to this illness, but then because I had been going up there and doing these um, experimental blood treatments, uh, I started to really deepen into that. And so while the invitation to the, the book was there, that really felt like the, the container that would allow me to be back there to, to be in Madison. But the real purpose of being there for myself was to be present with him and with my mother and almost like a, a guardian or a steward within his passage that he was entering into and this final um, denouement or final chapter of, of his own life. Were you thinking about it from, I guess, Christmas, which would have been around December, and you said you went up there about a month before COVID. So there's like a two-month period of time. Were you thinking about that? Like, geez, maybe I should go spend some real time. Maybe I should go write that book. Is that top of mind for you? I don't think the book was, but I was feeling torn. Yeah. I was feeling stretched between two places because I was traveling back up to Madison during those during that time a couple times to do these blood treatments where they were pulling out plasma or technically they're pulling out specific T cells. Um, and so, yeah, I was starting to feel like I had my feet in two places and one was the place that I thought I was supposed to be and one was the place that felt right to be. Mm. It's interesting because I, I shared with you when we, we first spoke, I have a very, very similar experience. Um, I didn't write a book, but my mom was in her last six months mm -hmm. of her life, and I, I kind of knew it intuitively. And so I pivoted, I guess it was when I was 19 years old, and I moved of all places to Las Vegas. <laughs> like, that is so not mm -hmm. my jam. And I still, to this day, don't know why, other than the fact that I think something kind of nudged me there. And I spent the last mm -hmm. four months of my mom's life with her. And it was mm -hmm. the best decision because like what you're saying, I got to spend each and every day. I mean, I still went to school and you know, was doing some things, but I spent more time with my mom in that four month period than I spent probably my entire life other than maybe when I was, you know, super young. Yeah. And I remember reading this one data point that said something just like that, that, you know, by the time we leave our parents' homes, usually at the end of high school, um, you know, obviously not everyone's with their, their parents until that point, but for you know, the people who are, um, you've spent over 90% of the time you'll spend with them your entire life already. And you know, that's, that's shocking. And so it's, and it's not normal in our, especially in the US, for people to go back home after college, you know, the way it is in other European places, or also there seems to often be this inertia that I've noticed of moving forward and forward is understood in this way as like to the next place right. that's not home, but away from home in some ways. And I don't know if that's like the inertia of our ancestors who 
you know, had to leave their, the, had to leave, you know, Ireland or Italy or wherever they're coming from. Um, and there's that consistent uprooting inertia that has to be broken or, or what. Um, I have a dear friend who moved back to Madison around the same time as, as I did. And he had talked about going back to Madison and had talked, was speaking with a, a friend of his and, and she had said, what do you mean going back? You know, it's a globe. It's a globe. There's no forward or backward mm. on a on a sphere. There's just in a direction. Um, and and I love that he said that. And it really resonates with what what you said too. Is like we think about. We even say it in our language. We go back home, right? Why not move forward home? That's interesting. Why not? Why can't we conceptualize as going back? Going to. I almost said it right there. Going to our hometowns. Going to our family as progression as opposed to what's captured in the language as regression. So I'm curious about the process of writing the book. Your dad's sounds like he's in his last year of life. He's got all of these ailments. How did you do it? Like what was, what was the actual process? Were you the writer? Did you guys brainstorm ideas? What did that look like? Yeah. So he had written an initial um, draft of the book that needed a lot of work. Mm. He was a professor. He wrote the book as a professor and it just needed a lot of work. So we had a couple of phases that we went through. The first phase being reorganizing the entire book. So sitting down and taking all the pieces that he had, dividing those pieces into chunks and saying, okay, there's a lot of really rich stuff here. What needs to go where? And we had the support at the time of a really amazing editor um, of a book agent who was really interested in the book that we were working on at the time. And so she also helped us think through how to reframe and restructure it to make it much more accessible to folks who weren't looking to read a book of a professor's sort of ultimate musings on life and the work that he's done and all of these things. And so we really had to, to bring it into a specific form in a container and structure, you know, giving it structure for it to be useful. So that was the first big chapter. And then we got into a writing flow where we would, I would write and I was doing the majority of writing. Um, and then we would review and talk through and then go chapter by chapter through this process where I was just the primary writer. Um, then things got really interesting because as we are progressing with this book, my dad is dying. Mm -hmm. And so his capacities to use the computer, for example, are starting to go away. And so we're also going on this journey of how we have to interact is changing, where initially he was doing his own work. He was working on editing the final version of a textbook that he had written that he also wanted to finish before he passed. Um, I'm working on this book. I'm sending him chapters. He's reviewing them and commenting them. We're kind of going back and forth using technology, coming together to talk through things when we need to, but we're kind of doing our own thing. We get to a point where um, first what happens is that he something changes and he spends about three weeks in this state of absence is I think the word I would use where I could see him and maybe you had this experience with, with your mother, but I could see that he was here, but that his consciousness would leave his, his body and I don't think he ever knew how long it was gone for, but he would just be gone. It would be gone. And I could see it when it would come back into him and he would sort of startle a little bit 
and look around and you could kind of read in the eyes like, whoa, here I am. How, where did I go? That was weird. Whoa. Okay. I'm back in a body again. That's interesting. And I could see this on oh, in his eyes yeah. as he's computing this. And sometimes it was 10 minutes. Sometimes it was four hours. And so he's not very useful to talk to with a book at that period of time. And while miraculously he actually came back and made a recovery from that phase that was in December and he didn't pass away until the end of February. Um, when he came back, he couldn't use the computer at all. And, you know, I had to first watch him struggle with that. You know, he couldn't find the file. He couldn't remember where he was on the computer navigating through it. Um, he was writing notes to himself that just looked like absolute chaos. Um, and so we got to a point where the way that we were writing couldn't happen anymore. And actually an even more beautiful thing unfolded because that forced us to sit down and read chapters out loud together and talk through every sentence and every paragraph. And how should this be? What should this say? Are we achieving what we want it to or not? And that was probably the most beautiful time of the entire process where father and son having co-written this book together with both of our ideas talking about how our ideas are being manifested in it and how they're showing and are we really saying the right things to capture it and really like intellectually sparring not on a shared piece of paper not as we were kind of forming the outline but really in these little nuanced areas and points that we're making throughout especially the last couple chapters of the book where ultimately we were having a conversation about our philosophies of life mm. that was much much greater than what was on the page it was being fed into that but i remember him just sharing how much he loved that phase of our experience um because he was just getting to talk about life with his son right, right but within this purposeful context that made it accessible for him and it was that was actually necessary for us to both arrive at the goal of completing the book before he passed away do you think you recognize the gift in the moment I did. Um, I think I felt it from the very beginning. Again, I think there are these two layers that tend to happen for me where there's this like, embodied human experience that's going through all kinds of stuff, right? On a daily basis, discomfort, annoyance, frustration, uh, laughter, you know, all the, all the emotions, right? And then there is this sort of meta level or this higher self that I was operating on that was very conscious the entire time of what was happening and what how special it was. And really that was, I was there writing a book with him that was about organizational growth and transformation, but I was actually in a study with him of death. And those two things were happening in parallel. And that was just a really, and I was conscious of that pretty consistently um on a week-to-week -week basis day in day out sometimes i could fade and go away and come back but i can i'm proud to say that i was really present with that the whole time i was going to ask and you may have already answered it with the sitting down and, and debating different topics with your dad but was there a special moment that stood out in the process um those moments absolutely i would say that probably the most special moment is and have you have you ever written a, a big or done it like a big piece of work oh, yeah. or something like that? Yeah, you know, there's a moment where you just want to be done. Right. You really just want to be done, but you really know that you're not. And I remember this moment with him, where we were 
we were we he had come back right after that December period, and actually the first thing he said when he really like shifted back into fully present consciousness was, "We need to rewrite chapter ten." And that was the last chapter of the book. And I remember being like, "Ah, oh, I don't want to do that. I want to be done with this book. You're doing this for so many months. I'm tired <laughs> of this." And and I was like, "Okay, okay, surrender, surrender, trust." You know, and I worked with him on that. And as we were doing it, I said, "You know, Dad." if we're really honoring these types of intuitions, we also have to rewrite chapter nine and part of chapter eight. And there's this moment of both of us just being fully present with, we're on the same team here. You know, we're both like, we were aligned in what we were doing, but there's this moment when the end, the end point seemed like it was right in front of us. And yet he said, you know, we need to take two steps back. And I said, ah, actually, we need to take three steps back. And we were both willing to do that. And that's that's what opened up those moments for those dialogues that we had around those chapters. And so I think that was the the moment of real, fully sort of heart aligned. We are both connected in doing this in the way, in the right way to, to do it so that we get to a point where we hand this book off and he makes his passage and we both feel complete with it. Not that we just got it over with, we got to the end, but we're willing to slow down right when we felt like we were so close to being done. I'm wondering if either one of you wanted to be done. I can definitely say that I had periods of time when I wanted to be done. Um, And I think he was in a different way working with, he's holding on. You know, my dad was a strong willed person. He'd done 40 day fasts. He had periods of his life where he took cold showers every morning and said minutes, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes of prayers while under those showers. Um, he had done the Pasma retreats. Um, he'd built spiritual fortitude in a lot of ways. And it was very clear to me that he was committed to not dying until he was fully sure that the book was complete and he was okay to let it go. And I saw him fighting and holding on and even that moment right the first thing he said when he came back into his like present body you know after this really concerning confusing weird couple of weeks in december was we need to rewrite this chapter it was almost like you know his spirits like flying out there and probably had a few opportunities to leave his body and he was like no nope nope the book's not ready yet i'm coming i gotta go back we gotta go back and finish this and life's getting really hard for him you know he's there's this really special moment that I remember when he just couldn't make coffee. You know, he'd been making coffee for you know, 40 years every morning and just couldn't do it. And every day it was something else. He'd just forget a different part of it. And I would just continually wake up and go into the kitchen and see him with a puddle of water. And he was just like, yeah, I put the water in, but I didn't put any coffee in, or I forgot to do this, or I forgot to do this. And, you know, there were these really tangible ways you could see that, he was just fully dilapidating and his body was fully regressing. Um, but he was holding on with his mind to be as mentally present as he could until he could let go with his mind too. And that was at the completion of the book. Yeah. I asked that question because to a certain degree, it almost feels like the book was a conduit to spend real time with you. Absolutely. What about, and, and more than that too. I mean, I think it's a yes and, I think that's the, that's the core service that the book did for us. And it also was a snapshot 
I capture that experience. So I have this like artifact of us mm. and all the things that we were going through at that time became manifest in the book too, as we are going through our own study and all of these things. So yeah, it provided this platform and the story is incomplete right here because the book's just coming I would, out. That was going to be right? my next and question. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the story's incomplete. So I'm not, I don't know yet what, if there are, what are the more present? Like, I feel really complete with it serving in that way. And yet there's this unknown future that the book can, is going to go on that I get to also steward that I don't know what more present it might bring. What I find fascinating, it's almost like there's a book underneath the book, meaning like there's this story <laughs> of you going through this with your dad, although that's not what the book's on. So maybe describe uh, what the book is and, and give its name and where people could get it. Absolutely. So um, the book is called The Character of Your Company, A Guide to Bring Work Back to Life. Um, this book is a workbook in some ways for any individual somewhat oriented towards leaders, but not fully, who is working in an organization and feels like their organization could really do a better job of either operating in alignment with its values or the people within the organization could do a better job of just being good humans. Um, and really what that means, and we frame this around this concept of character development, and that process is about becoming more aware of your behavior, understanding the impact of your behaviors on others, and committing and taking actions to change those behaviors. And all of that, to us, this process, and it's almost this traditional word, right? Character development. Uh, this was one of those conversations between the millennial and the baby boomer around what's the right word to use, character. <laughs> and, and characters is such an interesting word, right? Because we talk about it as this like stoic thing. And yet also there's, if you say someone's a character, there's a liveliness to it. And so it has these two pieces of it where you're both cultivating strength in some ways of strength of character. How do you really understand what your values are? How do you understand how you are acting and behaving in alignment with your values or not in interactions with other employees, in interactions with uh, customers, in interactions with other stakeholders? And you can examine all of these things. But in the process of doing that, there's actually an enlivening of the experience of work. And so the book is a, is a guidebook that helps individuals or entire organizations come together and understand how to do this in practice. Like what are the practical steps you can take to cultivate this process of character development amongst yourself, amongst other employees, amongst an entire organization. And so the core essence of the book is, is that it has exercises, it has um, full year-long programs that people can, can do with partners or amongst a team or an entire organization. And it gives you the whole list of how to do these things and specific exercises to also bring in when certain challenges come up or certain values get tested. So it's a big book of resources that can be read kind of cover to cover as a guide um, or used as a workbook. And each chapter has stories about how these types of challenges that these uh, practices can support come up in organizations and true stories from companies that you've heard of and some companies that are actually private from friends and people that I know who, who work that, you know, we've 
we sort of changed a lot of things of it in them to also show that are even more real in some ways, but also we have to protect <laughs> certain right. people because I mean, when you're talking about people not in their values, but then it, the book actually takes one more step beyond that to say, okay, we're talking about this on an individual level or on an interpersonal level, but you can actually look at all of these things and this idea of character development on an organizational level too. And this is where it really focuses on leaders to say, your organization behaves in certain ways. You have this reputation. Your organization has impact on people outside of the organization. Your organization can evolve and change. So how can you as a leader take the same mindset, the same set of principles that you're applying internally to do the organization's inner work for the individuals and actually turn it into full organizational outer work? And how can you apply those principles to how you respond to things that come up in the world that every organization has to respond to, right? We're all sort of impact, every organization is impacted by all kinds of outside forces. And how can you dynamically respond to that? And so it does the same thing then on an organizational level to say, here are some examples of those things. Here's how to use these same teachings and ideas and practices, but on a whole organizational level for leaders to make this big decisions and understand how can they respond as an organization to external events that help the organization deepen into its own values and show how it can practice them more and all the benefits that come from doing that, both in, internal and out, external to the organization. Seth, I was on the fence earlier about whether or not you should send the book to your old boss. I mean, I think even beyond like, hey, look at I wrote a book. My life is great. Like, it seems like there's a lot of practical guidance that, that he would benefit from. Yeah, that's 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 the sentence that I have to find total clarity that there is no spite in, right? The line that says, I believe that this may be of service to you and the organization too, if it wants to be, right? And how can I say that with full humility, full grace, full gratitude, right? And then do I need to say it or just let it speak for itself. Yeah, I don't know, but, but, uh, it almost sounds like you, you obviously had inspiration for some of the stuff that you wrote. So when is it, did you say when it's coming out? I know it's imminent or it's come out. What, where is it at? The, the book has come out. We were, I was really, really happy that we were able to publish the book, um, on my dad's birthday. Mm. So it came out on January 12th. It's available on Amazon now for purchase. Um, and so, yeah, that's where you can find it. It, it lives there um, with awesome cover art by uh, two dear designer friends of mine, Somnath Bot and Justin Stengley, mm -hmm. um, uh, published by the good folks at Tonic Books. Um, a guy named Ben Allen has been uh, really, really helpful to this process as well. So yeah, the full, the full birthing has started and now it has the opportunity to actually live in the world and it's out of my hands. There's so many elements that connect with me, especially coming from, you know, a practice that focused on culture and ethics and risk and governance. Uh, so this sounds like a, a must read. Where are you going to take it from here? It's a great question. <laughs> you know, I, um, I've been in this very specific container for this, this current month, which has been really, so my dad passed away at the end of February. So I've had this window between his birthday and the day he passed away where I've been really just focused on getting awareness of the book out to all the important people in his life. And he left me with this list of 300, 400 Jeez. people from his life that he would 
like me to, he would like to be made aware of the book when it's come out. And so I've been in this journey of writing personalized emails to every single one of them, acknowledging, you know, because I don't know all of them. I don't know how well he knew all of them as well. So there's this process that I've been going through of just notifying them. Um, you know, and I've been in that process and I actually have a very full inbox already of folks who've written back. Um, and I've, I haven't read them all yet because I feel like I really need to clear some space to sit with those responses and be with them. Um, but it's been really beautiful to see see the responses so far. Um, you know, for me, I don't have a, a big platform. I'm not an influencer, any of those things. I'm not working with a huge publisher that's doing this big distribution process. So the book really is going to grow in this way. You know, I kind of really think of it as like a, as like a something you've planted in your garden, right? Yeah. I've like planted the seed, I've written the book, it's been published, you know, it's kind of burst out of the ground, but it needs sunlight and it needs water and it might need some fertilizer, it might need some weeding. So there's this tending practice that I, I'm going to be giving to it over the year as, you know, I've reached out to my whole network as well and made them aware of it. And then, you know, there'll be a step where I follow up with people to say, hey, did you like this? Because I don't want anybody to, I don't want to be marketing this book for folks who don't find it right. useful or valuable. But if someone does feel connected to it, feel inspired by it, then to say, okay, where can this go next? Can we, where can we help this take the next step forward? Because really, for me, this is as much, it's my work as well as my dad's. So it's also his spark, his yeah. essence, his lasting essence is sort of, sort of in this book. And so for me, it's also this opportunity to allow it to perpetuate and place it in all these different places. You know, I always wonder how, you know, all these like, you know, all you got people have books from all over. And is there a little bit of that person's essence in those books and all those places? And can I sprinkle a little bit of his essence all over the world? And that's sort of a different version of spreading his ashes in some ways. What an awesome legacy. It, I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you, because you've gotten me to think, and maybe this is even a question per se, maybe this is just a comment, because the process that you've gone through is very interesting. One is, obviously, your dad was in his last year. And most people would say, listen, I'd like to spend as much time with my, my parent as I can. But you were able to figure out something to do with him that was extremely meaningful for him, maybe most importantly, but then also you. And now there's something that's going to give back for months, if not years, the book. And so the thing that's running around in my head is, is how to construct your last year with your parents differently or a loved one, because you did it in a meaningful way. And I, I don't have an answer, but, but I just reflect back to when my mom was passing, I was just there, but could there have been something that we did differently that would have been meaningful and would have carried on. Yeah. I mean, we as a society, and I'm using we in a general American sense right now, um, struggle with honoring elderhood. And so there's this way that, and it's so fascinating all the ways that this comes together, right? In the social security conversations and where like how elderly care is done and this like, but also how a large voting block in the active voting block in the US are people beyond retirement age. And there's like this kind of like battle between capitalism's like you're not valuable and the voting population block. And I mean, there's all these things that are happening, but underlying all that, in my opinion, for as someone who's gotten the 
the fortune of being able to travel to other countries and see other ways that different countries and different cultures relate to their elders, I see a big gap in that in the U.S. And, and it's this way that progress seems to accelerate so much in the minds of, of younger folks that my dad can't operate a cell phone. So what, what value? Worth of value? Yeah, what value are they? Exactly. You yeah. can't, can't understand AI, can't understand struggles with evolving his cultural perspectives around race or gender or things like this too, right? And so there's all types of ways that it's easy to relate to our elders as people who are falling behind as opposed to people who have wisdom to share and pass forward or sort of as you talk in this podcast, right, about what are their songs. And I think there's something really important in creating a container that both honors what they have learned and what they have experienced and helps them feel like they are actually passing something on. And even if there's a lot of noise in there, which I'm sure there will be, and there was in my experience too, there's something about even just the ritual of that process that I think helps them feel more honored for the lives that they've lived. And I think that's a really important thing. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think one of the challenges that folks when they're getting older have is that they don't have purpose anymore. I mean, Mm -hmm. they just like, you know, they're kind of just living out their final years and by engaging in a way like you did, you're actually giving, you gave your dad purpose. Now I know he invited you into this, but that's why I'm, I'm just thinking on top of my head, my, my in-laws are still around. Like what could we do differently with them so that we could share in purpose, you know, before they move on. And that's something that can be co-created, totally. right? It, it can be, it can be an investigation. It doesn't have to be, I have this idea right. or something like that. And, and ultimately what I sort of discovered is that the format really doesn't matter no. that much. No. It could, it can emerge into something beautiful, but it's, you're just building a container for an experience and, and really knowing what the real purpose of the experience is, I think is what's most important. Um, and what that's going to look like for every person, you know, not everyone can move home or spend this really close time. So some people might, might be visits over time. Right. But, you know, I want to document your life. I want to capture yeah. your stories. I want to just have conversations with you. I want to play a game with you and just be present with you, you know, cause some, some folks don't want to share those things. Um, I want to interview you, right. How can we just do this long interview about your life? I love that. I think there's all sorts of ways that we can, discover all kinds of things that certain as someone who's done some of those interviews of his parents i've discovered things that have deeply served me in my life of like oh i didn't know you did that i struggle with that thing like okay this is a generational thing okay we're working on this together okay great you know that's really important now i used to think that's a thing you know and i'm not getting the details of those things but yeah i think so much can emerge that you don't even have to worry about that piece of yeah, it. I love that at the, at the beginning. I love that idea of co-creating the experience with your, your parent or whoever it is. Uh, so that's, that's my big takeaway. You know what my problem in this podcast that is I've got so many goddamn questions and my guests are always so interesting <laughs> that they go on forever. And I actually was given, Hey Mike, maybe you should cut it down a bit. And I'm like, ah, that's too difficult. Cause it's too good. But I do have a final, uh, a couple final few questions for you. And, and the first one sure. is just, Tell us what life looks like for you now, because 
you have a pretty special thing going now up in Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, life right now is rich and full. I'm married uh, to an absolutely fantastic and beautiful woman. Um, I have a daughter on the way. She's going to be born in June, whose due date is actually on the anniversary of my dad's memorial service, wow. the day after my birthday and the day before my sister's birthday. Um, and we didn't plan that. <laughs> uh, and that's how it came together. So he's still hanging around in some some cheeky ways, I think. Um, we just adopted a, a puppy, so we have a, we're building a family here. I'm working at an organization I mentioned, Terra.do, that helps folks transition to work on climate change. It's an awesome team. Um, the best organization I've worked at, and so much better in so many ways than any experience I've had previously. That I just have really deep gratitude for. Um, I've actually been teaching at as an adjunct professor at the university that my dad used to teach at. Um, that's actually across the street from where I live. Uh, and so that's been really special. And then of course, uh, this book has just come out. Um, and so, yeah, life is, life is really rich and abundant and I can have nothing but gratitude for all parts of the journey. Yeah. If somebody's going through a hard time right now, just listen to that because three years ago, almost to the day, I don't know if it was to the day. Do you remember the date you got fired? Ooh, it's pretty close. It's gotta be. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. let's just say it's three years to the day. Who knows? <laughs> but listen, in three years, you went from losing your girlfriend, losing your job, and look at where you are. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it should give anybody and everybody hope that, you know, sometimes when, when things that are bad, at least on the surface, could be the greatest accelerant, here I use that word again, but that could be the greatest thing in life <laughs> in order to get you where you may not know where you want to get to, but, but is where you belong. What's so crazy about that is three years is a long time and when it's in the future. And three years is kind of nothing when it's in the totally. past. And, you know, but I think if you had sat me down and said, before any of this happened and said, in three years, this is what will be happening in your life. Are you willing to accept whatever path or journey will take you to that point? I think I would have said yes. Right. Um, and I think I'm, I say yes to that right now in whatever those next three years look like that are where I feel the best and feel grounded and feel like I'm on my path in the right way. Everything feels on course in some way, shape or form. Um, I think I probably would have had a different idea of some of the details if I had said yes to that, you know, three years ago. But if I surrender all of those things, a hundred percent. And so that's, you know, that's hard. And they, these can be trying times when you get pulled into that, you know, dark night of the soul or, you know, everyone, there's different cultures have different names for that moment. Uh, ashes work, things like that. But um, there's, when it feels like it's aligned with a higher good and you can keep your eyes on that thin, fine line that you can walk along and it's clear and you can find it, you know, that, that thread of hope, right. Or trust or faith, whatever, whatever the word is for, for an individual, um, you know, it's, it is there and it is a guide and it provides guidance and it is something that we can follow. 
when you look back on this and if somebody is listening and is like, I'm resonating uh, with what Seth has to say, what's one thing, like one thing, like let's just get it to the one thing that you learned from your experience that you think others would benefit from? Points of change deserve celebration. What do you mean by that? I mean, beyond the obvious. I think that we, you know, there's these moments in life that where contraction happens and everything feels like it's squeezing in. And like, oh, I don't know, I'm going to get through this and it gets really, really hard. And then there's other moments when there's like expansion, right? And all of a sudden everything opens up and life can feel so full and abundant. And and there's a there's a cycle to that. You know, it's not all just abundance all the time. It's not all contraction all the time. Sometimes the contraction takes longer and the abundance takes longer. And so oftentimes big changes are moments of contraction. It's like you're squeezing through a portal. Like, I mean, think of birth, right? Mm -hmm. I'm about to have a child and like big transformational moment. This big baby has to get through this narrow channel that is going to adapt and allow it to emerge into the world. And then all the expansion starts to happen, right? When those moments of change happen, it's important to celebrate them, even if they feel really hard, even if they feel really difficult. Um, because that celebration in the moment is the most immediate form of practicing gratitude that I think one can show. I love it. Final question, Seth. Time to sing your song. It's all about the song that we sing that really brings to life, you know, those, those journeys that we're on that shape who we are. And, and obviously, you've been on a three-year journey that has really taken your life to a special place. Uh, you've had these experiences with your dad. You have this new family. You're doing work that seems like it's extreme. And this is even beyond the book, but that's extremely meaningful. You've been able to just totally change your life for the better of the last three years. So when you think of the journey you've been on, is there a song that comes to mind? Uh, it's so funny and wonderful that we're having this conversation today. And I mentioned this to you a little bit earlier, but I um, had a dream last night, my last dream of the night that I woke up from. I was with two dear friends and dear brothers of mine, and we were singing a song together. And I woke up and the lyrics of the song were in my head and I never heard it before. And I won't, I won't share all of it, but there's a, a stanza of it. I don't even have a name for this song at this moment. Um, but I think it might be called My Long Lost Friend. Um, but there's a stanza in it that actually has the name of this podcast in the stanza. And I hadn't even realized that until we were talking about this earlier. And the stanza goes, and it'll sound probably relevant to this conversation that we've been speaking to. Um, I'm still with you, you know it's true. Love never dies, breathe it to life. We live each day walking our way. The path goes on, we sing our song. It's a great way to end it. And I'll just tell everybody we did not stage this. <laughs> like I, when we were talking before we jumped on and, and started hitting record, Seth said, you're not gonna believe this. So that's pretty cool. Hey. Let me let me share the one stanza after okay. it because I think it I think it connects to. Um, to this. Here is my life. Here is my strife. Here is my love, my joy above. Mm. So much to share, wisdom I bear, strength I have found, deep truths abound. Damn. Seth, thank you so much for 
more than an hour. Um, once again, I'm really bad at managing time, but but we got a lot of great stuff out of you. I really appreciate it. And I applaud you in so many different ways. One, just kind of going with your your intuition and, and moving or going, what was the word you said? Moving towards home. I think that was not going back to home. I have to remember that. But Jen, also the thing that I really personally have taken away is this notion of how do you kind of co-create these experiences with people that you deeply love in their final months or year so that you can spend that special time with them and honor the life that they've had. And that's certainly what you did with your dad. And the best part is you've got a book that's going to carry on, that's going to allow you to bring his teachings to others. So I wish you the best of luck. And I have to say thank you very much for, for joining me today. Thank you so much for the invitation. More, more than a pleasure to be here. It was such a joy to, to hear your story on, on episode six. So if you're listening to this one, it's your first one. Episode six should be your next one um, to, to, hear, to hear the other stories. And yeah, just really, really grateful to be here. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, really a pleasure. Thank you, Seth. There are so many things that I love about your story. Everything from creating a model to spend meaningful time with a loved one in their final months to expanding how I personally practice gratitude. If you like my conversation with Seth, go back to past episodes to hear other amazing stories of rock bottom and redemption. I also want to give a big thank you to everyone who listens to Time to Sing Your Song and being part of this community that I'm building. My goal help everyday people like you and me, and if I were to be honest, especially me, use the hard times as a catalyst to create a life that we were all meant to live. Until next time, start singing it your song today because as the anonymous quote goes, when tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever. In its place is something that you have left behind. Let it be something good.